You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season hosts Lisa Greenwood, co-host Tim Sorens, and special guests explore spiritual formation. What is formation and what is the church's role in formation? Join our email, contact us, and find more resources from leadership ministry at tmf-fdn.org. Hi, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood, and I'm so glad to be here with my co-host for this season, Tim Sorens. Hey, Tim. Hi, Lisa. So, Tim, as we continue to explore this season's theme of formation, and before we introduce our guest and hear her incredible insights on neuroscience and spirituality, I want to pick your brain a little. Uh, Did you see what I did there? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, I wonder if you might talk about what spirituality means to you right now and and maybe how it has shifted, your understanding of spirituality and formation has shifted over time. It's such an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, when we think about spirituality, formation, those words kind of go together for me, at least how I've, I've perhaps been brought up. Like, how do we explore and express the inner landscape of our souls and what does that look like and how does it relate to the environments that we step into, the practices, the habits. When I think of spirituality, I got to be honest, I tend to think of the more individualistic kind of things, Mm -hmm. like the things that I do uh, to try and form my life. But the truth is, that's so silly too. (laughs) Like, as though spirituality could be a solo sport. Ever, Uh, right? (laughs) Inherently, it's relational, right? So to be real honest, Lisa, I'm curious about this for you. I kind of wrestle with the word itself, not like it's good or bad, but I sometimes think, "Ah, I just, I'm not quite sure how I always know how to talk about it because I have this maybe internal bias for how focused on the self it is. Mm. And then it, I I don't know if it's true for you, but I always kind of wrestle between the whole dichotomy between spirituality and religion, I would kind of prefer to just, I wish we had one word that we all agreed was just the thing. <laughs> and then we could just all talk about it a little more clearly. But how, how is it for you? How do you think about spirituality? Right. So, um, of course, we could spend hours and hours, days and days, months and years on how we understand what spirituality is. And But just, to, you know, thinking about where I am right now and where I've been drawn, especially in these conversations and, and over the last really couple of years of my life, is thinking about spirituality as a, a kind of deep in my bones understanding that there's more at work in us, between us, and in the world. And when I believe that is true, when I hold that, then it's more than just what I bring to any conversation or any relationship that there's more at work. So when I think about that, it, it you know, just to your point about it, it almost can't exist solo, right? It, it is always about an att- attentiveness to the space between us and to the energy between us and the energy in which we encounter our world and that kind of thing. And so literally it's how we encounter love and how we, you know, live and move and act and, and such. I love that, Lisa. It actually makes me think a little bit about, you know, we, the title of this podcast is Igniting Imagination. And it just makes me think about the, the imagination itself. Our imagine, a collective imagination, is so beautifully bound up with spirituality. If we can see, if we're aware, if we will show up, right? And so I love that kind of reframe of, of the, the posture of, and Dr. Miller gets into this, I think, a bit, the transcendent and how uniquely human that is. I really love that. Yeah, and so then- It was quite an interview. Yeah, it really, it really was. Um, so it, it, you know, we get to the question of formation. It really is about how we encounter the spirit. Spirit, you know, and you said I, I, you almost can't, you almost can't separate spirituality and formation because if we're going to really engage in the something more that exists, if we're really going to have a relationship with God, then formation is about how we create spaces where we can encounter 
what the Holy Spirit is doing and how God is at work in our lives and in the world. And so formation becomes this, this um, the, whether that's the practices or the, the physical spaces or the relationships, all of that becomes part of how we encounter the Holy Spirit at work in our lives and in the world. Um, yeah, I love that. And if that's true, then opening ourselves up, seeking to pay attention, seeking even as best we can to name the spirit at work within us, between us, around us, that is our perhaps our primary task. It's why this conversation of formation is so crucial and seems like such an invitation to the church. Yes, exactly. So our guest today, Dr. Lisa Miller, gives us amazing insight and language about the science of spirituality and, and really connects this idea of growth and change over time with our literal brain's awakening. So before, okay, before we talk more about Dr. Miller, let me share her bio with our listeners. So Dr. Lisa Miller is professor and founder of Spirituality Mind Body Institute at Teachers College, Columbia University. A graduate of Yale and University of Pennsylvania, she's a leading national expert in spirituality, health, and thriving in development. Dr. Miller has authored 100 peer review articles on spirituality and mental health in youth and families. She is a grant-funded clinical scientist, fellow of the American Psychological Association, and former president of the APA Society of Psychology and Spirituality. She is editor of the Oxford University Press Handbook of Psychology and Spirituality and editor-in-chief of Spirituality and Clinical Practice, APA Journals. Dr. Miller consults conducts workshops and trainings, and speaks extensively in the United States and internationally. I loved this interview. I was blown away. So I was, I was challenged for sure, but more than anything, I was inspired and encouraged, and uh, I loved it. Uh, it was such a joy to be part of it. So Tim, you weren't able to be there for the interview and the conversation with Dr. Miller, but I know you've listened and we've talked about this. What stood out to you? Three quick things. The first was, I cannot believe I missed this because it was incredible. I can't wait for everybody to hear it. The second was, and this is a bit of a teaser, I was really delightfully, not surprised, but just like enthralled with how she talks about the lack of capacity for us as a culture to talk about spirituality yeah. and its implications. I found that to be stunning with so many implications. And then the third, and I think all of our listeners are going to really love this because so many of our listeners are leading churches, leading faith communities all over the country, wrestling with what that means right now. She really gives, I would say, a charge to all of us that yes. what we are doing matters perhaps more than we can imagine. Yeah. And that's from a a neuroscience perspective. Right. So I thought, uh, wow, what an incredible interview. I can't wait for everybody to hear it. Yeah, so let's listen. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for being with us today. It is such a joy. I've been looking forward to this conversation, and I want to start with inviting you to share with us a little bit about your own personal journey that led you to focus on neuroscience and spirituality. So, Reverend Lisa, I have been a clinical scientist and clinical psychologist since the really the mid-90s. And when I started out, I was training on an inpatient unit, which for its time was a very innovative, respectful, caring place. But it was simply a truth that our patients were not getting better. This was an urban hospital in a highly respected system. And what I saw as a new psychologist was that people would come in, we'd discharge them, and they'd be back six months, a year later. And so ineffective wow. was this effectively a revolving door treatment process that I'd have to even say that most patients were getting worse. So I figured that you know we're here to learn, whether we're brand new or 10 years or 40 years into the work, and what were the patients saying? And what the patients were saying was quite revealing. I'll give you examples. There was a woman who, having been in and out over 20 times to this inpatient unit, was about to be sent upstate, which is really, you know, a, if you will, a, not a death sentence to your body, but to your freedom. So upstate, she was headed the next day, and she stopped me in the middle 
of the inpatient hallway. You know, the linoleum lights, the smelly fluids, mm-hmm. you know, stopped me in the hallway. And I said, Dr. Miller, I, I need you. She wasn't my patient. And in that time, it was a little bit taboo to talk to other people's patients, so-called mm-hmm. patients. So she was asking. And in my heart, I knew the only answer was yes. So I said, yes, how can I help you? I'm being taken upstate. Will you come with me? And I said, come with you where? And she said, well, down the hall this way. And we went down the smelly hall into the kitchen, back into the pantry. And in the corner of the pantry was a little pots and pans nook. And standing there where no one else could hear us. Could hear. Dr. Miller, will you pray with me? She was Catholic. I'm Jewish. And she knew that. And it was not for one minute a barrier. She knew that she was reaching out to someone who would be grateful and honored to pray with her. And so by the pots and pans, she took out her rosary and she prayed the rosary. And then at the end she prayed, she said, dear God, please protect me when I go upstate. And dear God, please protect Dr. Miller. How selfless in her moment of crisis. And then she turned to me and she said, no, Dr. Miller, you pray your way. And so I prayed the way that my mother had taught me. Um, and at the end, I said, and please, dear God, watch over Ms. I'll call her Ms. Jones. May she know that you're always with her. The next day I came wow. back. Her bed was made. She was gone. Oh, my God. So life tells you, God tells us when you know there's only one answer, and it's yes. Her journey and countless others like that on the inpatient unit where the hunger of the heart was for spiritual connection, to walk with me spiritually, together as we pray to God, where we find support, love, guidance through God together. That was the message loud and clear time and time again. And yet there wasn't a peep, not one word in traditional mental health training that addressed the deep spiritual heart of the patient. And after a number of these experiences, I decided that in my work as a clinical scientist, this was the most important dimension of human renewal, of recovery, of finding a life that was spiritually and emotionally full. So I I spent my next 25 years looking into this through epidemiology, MRI studies, genotyping studies, developing new clinical interventions. It became my life work because that's what the patient's said they needed. This is profound and and really provocative, frankly, to come at spirituality from the place of science. I mean, you are a scientist and a deeply spiritual person. I, so I want to get at the science. And, and before we do that, I, I just want to say that in the tradition that I have come from, Methodist tradition, we we value deeply insights of science. And, um, but I would say we haven't typically come to spirituality from the place of science. And so, so yes, we value it. And um, I would love to hear you talk about the science behind your work. Well, I think, Reverend Lisa, you're raising a very important point, which is for a very long time, there were two camps of voices. And one camp would say, I am a deeply spiritual and religious person. I know the truth within. I need no science to prove it. Mm. And the other camp would say, I'm a profoundly scientific person. It must be shown through the rigor of science or I don't take it to be true. Well, those very divided camps, I think, now can come together. We now know that spirituality and science go hand in hand, particularly when we use the lens to look at the impact of lived human spirituality in the rest of our lives. And particularly when we use the lens to look at those threads of lived human spiritual life to find their origin in our community, parenting, faith leaders, innate capacity. So if we're looking at the origin or the expression as spiritual life reaches across the rest of our lives, a clinical scientist has a good lens. But we do not, you know, we're certainly unqualified. I I am not qualified to tell you the meaning of the nature of reality. I'm not qualified to tell you um, how God works. I'm, you know, those are theological questions. Um, But I can tell you using the lens of science that we have a pretty good lens. You know, for most of the 20th century, there was barely anything 
investigated or published on spirituality in the course of a human life. But that was through no limitation of the scientific method. The method is very straightforward, rigorous. It is the lens, whether it's a telescope, a microscope, an MRI study, <laughs> a long-term clinical course study. The lens is the lens. It only points in the direction as guided by the scientist. In other words, the limit in the 20th century was not in the lens of science as a method. It was in the limitations of the scientists as wow. we were embedded in cultural vogues and you know, sure. sort of hot new topics in the profession. The fact of the matter is finally now we have 20 good years of science really, you know, the past 10 are superb. And I can share with you in summation what we know. In the awakened brain, I go into all of the science studies in greater detail. And the awakened brain also has cases that reflect the science so that you can take that in. But here I'm going to share with you the core, you're looking out the airplane window, the 20,000 foot view of what's really important to know for all people who care and love and help heal those who cross our paths from a spiritual perspective. Does that make sense? Right. Yes, please do. Yes. Most important finding from science, period, was developed in 1997 and replicated in 1999. And the finding is that every human being on earth is an innately spiritual being. Just as we have two eyes, two ears, and a nose, every single baby is born with the endowment of a capacity for spiritual life. And in particular, wow. there are at least two threads of lived human spiritual life with which we are born. And the first is an innate capacity to be in a transcendent relationship with whom I call God, whether you say Jesus, Hashem, the universe. And the second is that we might feel this relationship, this sacred transcendent relationship and our love for one another as sisters, as brothers, mm -hmm. love of neighbor. Those are both forms of relational spirituality. My lived, felt, dynamic relationship with God, who I call God, and the presence of God and my love for fellow human beings. And I would say that extends to the earth, fellow living beings. Now, how do we know that? Big claim, right? Well, any human capacity can be understood as a factor of genes and environment in its formation when we use a twin study. We look at twins raised together, twins raised apart, and factor out the commonality as a function of shared environment, shared genes. So, okay. So to get at nature versus nurture. Exactly. To get at, okay. Exactly. Okay. Beautifully put, Reverend Lee. So temperament. I'm sure if you've ever seen little babies, and particularly if you've seen two, you know that they are not identical in their temperament in the first three months of life. <laughs> I have right. three children. And the middle child, who has asked me to call her the center child, <laughs> was <laughs> nice. temperament, surprisingly enough, which kept her up and us four times a night for a year and a half. So four times a night for 18 months, you know, that sweet little sound that does need help, you know. Eh. So I'd get up, I'd march across the house. That was her innate temperament. And I would soothe the baby environment. 50% inborn, 50% environmental. She's 20 now. She sleeps through the night. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yes, right? um, she's allowed me to say she's at times anxious. Her temperament, as all of ours, is half innate, half environmentally formed. IQ, 60% innate, 40% environmentally formed. So you're sharing this mm. with many leaders. You know, everyone's bright. Well, they were born bright. Okay. Now, mm. similarly, when we work with people who are struggling, they're struggling. You know, let's walk with them with understanding and compassion, yeah. right? So capacity through which we experience spiritual life is one-third innate. This is wow. our birthright. And yet it is also two-thirds environmentally formed. There's a rich okay. embrace in the formation of the spiritual core. That rich embrace is, of course, our parents, our grandparents, our pastor, priest, and rabbi, our... 10,000 exchanges by the school locker and culture and climate of our school and yes. community. As we grow older, we pick our environment and we might know how very important it is to pick one that's consistent with formation of spiritual life and so too for our children. But one-third innate, two-thirds environmentally formed starts to help us understand why we have never seen so many young people with an atrophied 
spiritual core. You know, 20 years ago, it was simply not the case. I mean, certainly, okay, today there are wonderful young people with a strong spiritual core, but never have so many suffered for atrophy. Of say, core. Let's jump into that. Say more about that, will you? So Reverend Lee said 40 years ago, I'm sure you're well aware as our you know, community today, that the United States in a good attempt to be inclusive threw all religion out of the public square. And it turned out not to be inclusive, but instead time showed us radically exclusive. We lost from our public square the rich embrace of pluralism, where you tell me about your Christmas or Easter, and as a Jew, I tell you about Passover or Hanukkah, and my good friend fills me in about Diwali in her home. We lost the ability to share openly, joyously, outwardly in our boardrooms, schoolrooms, and everywhere else that we convene the most important part of our lives, our spiritual core. And with the silencing in the public square, we also threw the spiritual baby out with the bathwater to the point we are no longer spiritually or religiously conversant as a society. And where there's silence, you know society has a problem. When we didn't talk about death and dying, people whispered, I have cancer, right? When we didn't talk about rights of individuals, they whispered their identity quietly and kept it under wraps. Where there's mm -hmm. silence, there's a problem. And our growth right now must include the rich embrace of spiritual diversity. Can we know each other more? I wanna know you and I wanna be connected in the deepest part of your inner being, your heart, your core. That's the spiritual core. So because we have a public square silent on spiritual life, we now have a generation of young people, 40 years is long enough for someone to grow up, have a baby who grows up and is at your door, whether this is a high school or a high university, whether it's the US military or an entry-level job, our institutions in the United States have never received young adults with as little strength at their deepest spiritual core. There are 18 to 25 year olds who never prayed ever or meditated wow, right. by the side of a parent or grandparent, never read any sacred text. I mean, I'm sure you've seen some of this, have no notion that morality is written from an absolute relationship to who I call God. You know, they you cherry pick what you think, you know, it, a public square minus a spiritual core is a transactional public square. And we wow. increasingly in the square treat people transactionally. God, this is so important for us right now as we think about the role of the church. So in, in this series, we're, uh, we're talking about formation and it's it's been our premise and our observation that the church has lost its voice that has become timid and and I think this is what you're describing. I'm um I don't know that I would have had words around what you're describing now, but it's almost as if the church has bought in to this um sort of corporate throwing out of the baby with the bathwater. And I don't mean in our values and our understanding of who we are, but but in terms of how we have lived out our place in the public square. And and I'm wondering if you're seeing that in in our institutions, like our the silencing of our voice beyond Christian congregations, but kind of broader. So Reverend Lisa, I'll share with you that I've worked for two and a half, nearly three years with the United States Pentagon because mm -hmm. their 18 through 25 year olds are the same slice of American pie with which mm -hmm. we all work. Right? They are no different than my students at Columbia or Barnard in the atrophy of the core, in okay. having been raised in a world silent on religious and spiritual life. And there, it's very interesting, the chaplaincy as led by chief of chaplains, a two-star general, Tom Soljum, took up the charge of helping to re-infuse natural spiritual life back into the army culture. Mm. And so with partnerships, which I share with you because as leaders, as faith leaders, we need you. We need you so much. And I don't think there's anyone who can take your place. So I think this model that was invented, you know, the army often moves the needle for society. The army often- Interestingly, yes. Or, you know, comes up with a new way of approaching things socially or culturally. So there's now partnerships throughout the chaplaincy with behavioral health, with 
the drill sergeants, with the commanding mm -hmm. general. The chaplain, the faith leader, has drawn into partnership with all bands of professional expertise and contributions so that in some, there's a shift in the relational culture. It is no longer merely a transactional culture. It nice. is a transformational culture with, you know, of course, Martin Buber's notion of the I-thou relationship. Yes. I truly have your best interest in mind, as well as that of the overall functioning of this organization. So you are extremely expert in something that is really a gaping hole mm -hmm. in the United States culture right now, which is the spiritual journey in life and what supports and cultivations can be brought to the spiritual journey and who can we really be? You know, I'll share with you that I teamed up with a good colleague, Dr. Senior Luther, and, you know, we tried to put our heads together. As you know, um, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy issued a once in administration warning. Back in my day, the warning from the Surgeon General was smoking may be dangerous for your health. Well, right now, here in December, Surgeon General Murthy issued an advisory on the rates, the epidemic of the diseases of despair, addiction, depression, and suicide mm. in teens and young adults. So, you know, I have three 18 through 25 year olds. As a parent, I've got to face the reality that, you know, they don't just live in my home. They walk out the door, they go to college, Right. So I'm 56. When I was 16, I didn't know anyone who had attempted suicide, but all three of my children have talked someone back from suicide. When my wow. daughter was in eighth grade, she said, I know something's wrong, mommy. Eighth grade, I know something's wrong. Johnny's been gone two days. I said, two days? I said, Johnny probably has the flu. No, mommy, I just know something's wrong. You must call his mother. So I get on the phone. I call Johnny's mother and she said, we are so touched that Lila thought of us. Johnny's on the inpatient unit. Can I give you the number on the inpatient unit for her to call over to him? And she calls over and his parents had recently been divorced. There was a lot of pain in his heart. And he'd taken a knife and carved a heart on his leg before attempting suicide. So that is an experience that when I was in eighth grade, I didn't have. And I can tell you that very same child came running up to me, Lila, with the phone. Mommy, you've got it. You know, she wants to help. She wants to heal, all, like all children. Every child wants to heal. This woman, she said on, on my phone here, this, this, this girl on my phone here, she's going to take her life. And sure enough, you know, on the Instagram, I can't take it. I've been in pain two months, two months, right? I'm taking my life. So what would you have thought would follow? You know, tell your parents get help, this will pass, you've got to hold on. No, you go girl, it's your life. No one can tell you what to do with it. We can no longer locate diagnosis, suffering, despair at the level of the individual. This is a culture and climate mm. crisis. Our entire society needs to put spiritual heart, our deepest spiritual core back into the center of who we are how we know each other, how we treat each other. And you are the perfect leaders to help us do that. Of course, in a way that is pluralistic and inclusive. But at the same time, you know, it's really not that hard because all of us, we know through science, one third innate, we have the same foundational spiritual endowment. Just as mm -hmm. we're involved, you know, each of us is endowed with a system through which to see the outside world, a vision system, an auditory system, we're born with a system to perceive the sacred transcendent. It's one third innate. So there is a universal spiritual brain. We all have it. Whether we are Christian, Catholic, Jewish, Hindu, Muslim, one spiritual brain. So interfaith is this beautiful blend of pluralism with universal spiritual awareness. And it's our faith leaders from all traditions. Please help us. Let's move, you know. Well, I'm hearing you also, I mean, it's an invitation to bring the fullness of your tradition, not check it at the door, but bring the fullness of your tradition to the public square, to the conversations, to the community, to the neighborhood, and welcome others to bring theirs as well. I mean, it's an invitation to bring the fullness. And that that feels so encouraging and empowering and uh and enlivening. So, Our lives yeah. are back when we do that. You know? yeah, so yeah. Um, I fully agree. The more of you and the more of your faith tradition, the better, the richer, the more vibrant, you know, the thousands of years of inspired guidance, the direct relationship 
with who I call God. I mean, that that is how to live as we are, we now see through science, inherently built. We are sick and empty because we have disintegrated our core from how we are built to live. We know this, it's clear as day in science. So I'll share with you a few more scientific facts. The I'd love that. Okay. <laughs> so here's, I'm going to give you a scientific look at we are here. You know, when you go on a hike, you first see the map, yeah. there's a little red arrow, you are here, right? But there's a great landscape and a series of choices and paths in front of us. Mm -hmm. So knowing that we're innately spiritual beings, we know that a two-thirds embrace that revitalizes spiritual relationship will strengthen the spiritual core. Right? Well, even though we have never faced as great an epidemic in the diseases of despair in young people, we have a roadmap for a way out. The first piece of evidence is that with the sharp escalation in the diseases of despair has been concomitantly a sharp decline in personal spiritual life and family faith observance. And the two statistically go hand in hand, which means that if we can reverse the downward decline, we can support, you know, across at the level of a country, spiritual renewal and mental health renewal. The second piece of data, which is magnificent, is that if we look across the course from middle adolescence to late adolescence to emerging adulthood, there is a growth spurt. Just as we start to look different physically, mm. as all of our traditions know, there's a growth spurt spiritually. We come of age. We stand before our community, whether it's through confirmation or bar and bat mitzvah or the anipi or the sweat lodge. And science mirrors this through a longitudinal twin study through which we see a 50% increase in the heritable contribution to spiritual awareness, which means, mm. you know, from the inside out, there's a biological clock. Bring, wake up. We have no choice. And there's a hunger of heart for connection and the numinous and the transcendent in every middle, late adolescent, emerging adult. And there's a nagging to know, you know, what is my purpose? But I don't just mean, will I be a teacher or a lawyer? I mean, ultimate purpose as a soul on earth, as, as a right. being of God. What is my purpose here? And what is the deep truth about the nature of life? This is a surge of spiritual awakening and the capacity expands with that booting up, that surge of capacity, it can feel like a half-empty glass of spirituality. Sure, there's moments of connection and illumination and mystical moments that are extraordinary. And then there's very painful, hard times of, wait a minute, you know, everything you ever told me, mom, dad, uh, Reverend Lisa, yes. I'm testing it against my own heart. And is it true? And if I'm at a college, like 98% of colleges that say, no, it's not true in the air and water, that's a tough developmental task. And I can share with you that spiritually coming of age, if supported, strengthens the core. But what we have right now is spiritual coming of age with very little support, you know, very little support on campuses. And it makes this developmental task that much more difficult. Wow. Why? Because in the spiritual awakening, the emergence of augmented capacity, the first existential coming up, the sort of ignition of this process is spiritual hunger, which feels existentially like depression. It is oh, a de okay. mental depression. It is not a DSM in the classic sense depression. And college counselors, wherever I go, tell me, you know, two thirds of my caseload is really not what we mean by DSM depression. It's this hunger for ultimate meaning and purpose. It's what you're calling developmental depression, which is the ignition or the knock at the door for spiritual emergence and awakening. Well, our young people right now are doing that very important work but they're doing it in a context without a whole lot of spiritual and religious support. Yeah, and that's wow. where, once again, you as faith leaders can make all of the difference. In fact, you will make the difference of a lifetime in that student's journey. Wow. So this notion of developmental depression that is actually a hunger that feels, and, and you're talking about it in terms of a stage of life, which makes all the sense in the world. And I kind of wonder if it's happening culturally or corporately in our country. Is that, 
I mean, is what we're feeling, because we, we have been noticing and reading about and, and anecdotally uh, researching, if you will, that there seems to be this rise in spirituality, but it's really rise in spiritual hunger. But with that comes a kind of despair and malaise about where do I where do I pursue that? And and it's not if it's not in the what's the inherited models of congregations, then where do I go? And so there's a, a sense of kind of existential loneliness that that rises because of that. So I'm connecting these observations that we've made with what you're saying. So set. Is that true? Is that making sense? I fully resonate. I, I share your view, Reverend Lisa. I feel that our culture at large is in a state of developmental depression. This is the mm-hmm. knock at the door for mm-hmm. our own spiritual mm-hmm. awakening and deepening. Yeah. Yeah. So developmental depression is actually a gift, even though it's uncomfortable and it causes us to question and probe existentially and you know, lose our old way of being for something new that we've yet to discover. But we're in a shared developmental depression, which is the opportunity for society if we say yes and engage it as such. You know, shift our conversation with life from what had been really, you know, repetitively, monolithically, what do I want? How am I going to get it? We were taught tactics, strategy, and we need that stuff to some extent, but achieving awareness alone is completely insufficient to deal with the deeper more powerful journey in life. And so if we can shift from what do I want and how am I going to get it to a new conversation, what is life showing me now? What is God asking of me now? What is the deep presence, the sacred in and through all life revealing to me and us now? That is a dialogue. That is a dialogue. I call it awakened awareness because we're awakening our naturally spiritual brain. And Awakened awareness is not just a belief, it is a seat of perception. And we've even shown in the human brain the circuits that support for all of us this seat of transcendent lived relationship. Dr. Miller, I have chills all over because what you're saying makes so much sense and is an invitation, again, not to every individual to bring the fullness of who we are, but but you're inviting the church to be the church, right? You're inviting the church to step into this kind of corporate developmental depression, but also at strategic points along the way, which is, is what, I mean, this is this is who we are. This is what we do best when we own it and claim it and live it. And I just, I mean, I literally have chills with what you're saying because I'm so excited. And you can walk us through the, it really is a dark night of the soul, the knock at the door through which we cross over into a new spiritual landscape. You know how to do this. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where else we're going to find the help. Yeah, may it be so. Wow. Wow. So I appreciate this so much because I, I I think you're speaking, first of all, I think you're helping spiritual leaders not feel crazy about how hard this is. And when we look across the country, we look at our communities, we look at our young people and, and it feels hard and you're naming it. It, it is hard. And you're reminding us that we have a, a beautiful and important role to play. And some of that is is in you know core beliefs and teachings but it's more than that it's asking the question it's naming the reality it's it's truly seeing young people individuals where they are and helping them name where they are and allow them to be hungry spiritually hungry and and then of course you know among their peers and in in sacred spaces to feed that hunger with the richness of our story and our narrative and our ability to question and dive in. And so, thank you. And as you suggest, it's extremely, it's, it's an emergency in our young people. And it's present for all of us in every decade of life. Yeah. The, yeah. the knock at the door, the despair, the existential, truly, if we think we don't know where we're going, really don't, that is a confusing, disorienting place to be. And the knock at the door can be heard as not just aspirational hope, but the literal, you know, 
throw me the golden rope of hope is we are now following the golden rope on our journey spiritually. Mm -hmm. And with a faith leader beside us, you understand this terrain. There's names for this journey. Mm -hmm. There's practices that can help us Mm -hmm. grow ever more into dialogue with God or our higher power. There's ways of doing this together as a journey group. So pilgrimage, it's really a cultural pilgrimage. It is. It is. It's actually magnificent. It just hurts at the beginning. (laughs) It hurts. It's important to note that, right? That it hurts at the beginning. So Dr. Miller, I don't want to end our time without touching on your book, The Spiritual Child, because I feel like it has so much to say to us as the church. I mean, we believe in and have claimed the role of forming really every individual through their life, but certainly children. And and so as you think about our role in spiritual formation of children, what should we know? I mean, I, I know this is too brief a time to, to do all that we could do with this topic, but but what, what should we know? And, and what have we, where have you noticed that we've kind of missed the mark or fallen short or gotten wrong, you know, as we think about our role in forming children? So in both the spiritual child and the awakened brain, I try to emphasize that in aggregate, science shows us that the protective benefits of spiritual life against the diseases of despair are so enormous. I mean, a a young person with a strong spiritual core is 80% less likely to meet DSM diagnosis for addiction to drugs and alcohol. That went into the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the premier child psychiatry journal. That is a fact based on a national sample. So if a teen is raised to say, I turn to God for guidance in times of difficulty. If I have a tough decision to make, where am I going to go to school? Am I going to break up with him? You know, Where's God in my friendships and my, my boyfriend relationship? That is not just a belief, it's a felt relationship. It is knowing that we are loved and held, we're guided, and we're never alone. And we can show you in our fMRI studies in the awakened brain, I map this out, the seat of neuroperception, if you will, the docking station. I certainly would not want to claim biological determinism. It is only the neurodocking station for the transparent relationship. Well, 80% less likely to be addicted, 70% less likely to take dangerous risks, like jump out the second story window at a party, drive 90 miles an hour. In a meta-analysis, so a study of studies to yield 2,000 plus tragically completed suicides, 5,000 match controls, we're 62% less likely to take our life when we have a strong spiritual and religious core. And that goes up to 82% when spiritual life is shared, shared in fellowship, shared whether it's through youth ministry or sitting side by side, my grandparents, or there is somewhere else to go where I learn a direct relationship to God as guiding, loving, and holding. It doesn't matter what comes my way. And in fact, our children are going to inherit a very volatile and unpredictable world. And the greatest gift that I wish for my children is not that they ace AP chemistry, it's that they can develop a sacred relationship through which they find guidance in very unpredictable waters. Guidance that is far greater than all of our historical knowledge, looking over my back left shoulder, the high pixel Mm -hmm. hit that's going to have forward-looking wisdom. So yeah, bottom line, that 82% less likely, that is the ultimate mental health crisis of our time, suicide. The rate of death by suicide surpasses the rate of death by auto accident in high school. The greatest killer of youth is suicide. And yet we have the antidote. I mean, if I told you there was this little red pill you could pick up at Walgreens, CVS, <laughs> and your kids, 18 through 25, would be four-fifths protected against the epidemic. I mean, that's what mm-hmm. the vaccine goes for, four-fifths, right? We would line up and do anything for our child. Right. So this is ours. This is a realization of our sacred birthright. And we know that through MRI studies that show the neurodocking station for our transcendent Mm -hmm. relationship and relational spirituality towards one another. Genotyping studies, long-term clinical course studies. If you look at a teen 
let me put it this way. When we are mean age 26, we did a long-term clinical course study. At mean age 26, if we say my spiritual life is highly important to me, it's where I heal strike, it's how I walk through life, mm -hmm. decisions I turn to God, friendships I love when there's God in them. I love all people, but my friendships have God in them. That way of life at mean age 26, well, we got there over the past 10 years from 16 to 26 through a 250% increased risk for having suffered. It was through the knock of the door of despair, depression, that the young teen emerging adult started to say, what is my purpose? And I mean, ultimate purpose. And what is my relationship to God? And you always said God is real. And my friends at college say it's not. Well, I have to find that on my own now. And yes, I'm learning logic and I need it. And yes, I'm learning empiricism and I need it. But equally valid, in fact, hard data is intuition, mystical experience, the uniting of multiple forms of knowing. When we look at people who use mystical experience alongside discernment, when they use intuition alongside logic, well, we literally pave the highways. We myelinate the tracks between the brains to have a more alert, innovative brain. And I mean, yes, we do better at work, but more importantly, we walk in alignment with the deep force who I call God in and through life. Well, that teen who does that work with you as a mm. faith leader, with you as a parent, 80% less likely to be addicted, four-fifths less likely to take their life, 70% less likely of to, to be harmed in a foolish risk. There's nothing that I would wish for my children more than that. I'm, I'm hearing you challenge us, frankly, to not shy away from the really hard stuff of life, but actually to step toward it and into it with space to name and, but also to understand, I love these words, that they are loved, held, guided, and never alone. I mean, those are powerful messages for every young person, every, every person to know and to believe and to hold on to. And it's universal. We are born with the ability to see and know who I call God. We are born that way. I mean, we are born with the circuits that come together, the bonding network, the attention network, and the parietal that puts in and, our, in and out our boundaries. So we know we're both unique and part of one family of life. We're born with all these circuits ready to be developed, to hold presence. And you have the knowledge to help us walk into adult development as standing before our community as a contributor. And not all social support is the same. We don't just need social support, spiritual support, where the presence of God is in and through our connection. That's an entirely different form. So I teamed up with my colleague, Sunya Luther. She wanted what she thought was a control group for the children in poverty she'd been trying to help for years. So she went to a highly resourced community. And when she gave the you know, highly resourced high school students the same measures of addiction, depression, anxiety, she was stunned that the rates of the diseases of despair are higher amongst teens in highly resourced communities than in the inner city. Interesting. More addiction, more depression, more suicidality. And so when I teamed up with Dr. Luther, I said, what do they look like spiritually? Well, the national rate at which a young adult says, I'm a profoundly spiritual person. My spirituality is highly important to me. I turn to God for guidance. They're in a lived relationship with their higher power. That's 70%. There's still a lot of very spiritually aware young people. But in highly resourced communities, what might you guess? 15, one five, less than a what? quarter of the national rate. 85% of teens in highly resourced schools outside New York, outside San Francisco, on the coasts, these schools, 85% did not feel a strong connection to God or their higher power, only 15. And of course, those 15%, we know from all other studies, hundreds of peer-reviewed studies, the 15% with a strong spiritual core were protected. They were inured from the otherwise epidemic. It was a tidal wow. wave walking through wow. these wow. suffering. Yeah. So how do I get and, my kid in that 15%? Right. Faith leaders, we need you because almost without exception, the rare student with a strong spiritual core amongst affluent culture right now is part of a faith community. Their family brings them 
at least twice a month somewhere other. There's somewhere else to go where we love yeah. and look at each other with bright, sparkly eyes for walking in the door. I am so yeah. glad to see you as a soul on earth, as a child of God. I don't care if your dad was just on the front page of the paper for making $10 million or going to jail. I love you and I'm so glad you've come. And if you've come in suffering or if you've come in shame or guilt, we're here to be renewed. That is an entire, you look right through my eyes and my bio body mm, yeah. suit and my clothes and my purse to my soul. Yeah. That is formation. That is awakening of the spiritual brain. And that is formation. Walking that's, in the door alone is formation. Yeah, that's then it beautiful. Just gets better. <laughs> right, right. Yes. So thank you so much. I feel like we could go on and on. Um, but we are asking all of our guests one final question to kind of wrap up each of our conversations. And that is for you to share with us, Dr. Miller, what is one way that you are being formed right now and what difference is it making for you? Thank you for asking. And because I didn't anticipate the question, you're gonna get a very authentic and probably unformed answer. I have found that it's extremely important to speak, to speak up. I have found that it is extremely important right now to speak up um, yeah. from a deep, loving, authentic place and to call this moment for what it is because I look at the young people and some of us in all decades, but particularly the young adults and their life depends on it. I, I love that that's where you're coming from with this because this is exactly what you're asking the church to do, not to be timid but to speak up and to speak into this moment. And that in doing that, as a congregation, we will be formed, let alone as spiritual leaders. So I, I love that when I ask you how you're being formed, you're being formed when you speak up. That yes. is part of your formation. That's a beautiful word to end on. Very true for all of us, yes. Yes. Dr. Miller, you are doing amazing work and you are calling us to live into our calling um, as religious and spiritual leaders and as the church. So bless you for being that scientist behind the lens that is pointing toward the need for, for spiritual formation and, um, and, and ultimately love. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you and I'm so grateful for your partnership. All hands on deck. May it be so. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Leadership Ministry Team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White. And from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening. <laughs>